we do our worship planning on Tuesday afternoons, and we thought it would be great for us as a church family to be reminded who our youth directors here are at the church. Abby was praying for us, and Conrad was giving the announcements, and they are doing great work with our youth. And so if you have youth at home, if you're a grandparent and you have grandkids who you think, oh man, they would love being a part of that, please connect with Conrad or Abby. Uh, one of the stories coming out of youth recently was that two Fridays ago, we had a movie night that was gonna take place, but Conrad and Abby didn't wanna tell the youth what movie they were going to watch, so they gave them a handful of options and said, you guys should vote on this. And apparently, the grade eight girls said, well, there's a Disney movie with Disney princesses, so obviously that's what we're gonna vote for, but this is no civic election. They allowed them to vote over and over and over again. And the grade 12 boys said, uh-uh, we don't need girls singing Disney princess songs all Friday night. And if you're wondering what that looks like, it's something like this. Into the unknown. So Colton, that's my daughter. You've got a lot of work to do over the next 20 years or so. And so anyways, we've got about 60 youth who come on a regular Friday night, and there were 3,000 votes cast. And I can only imagine the grade 12 boys going, we are going to make sure this is what's going to happen. We don't want any movie being seen. We want the movie we want. We got to get our priorities straight. We got to get our priorities straight. 18 months of COVID. 18 months of our world being turned upside down. 18 months of if we're used to sports or recreation or hobbies or small groups or going to the different events that we would normally go to, that cannot happen. There's this great reset that takes place across the nation. And what have our priorities been and what are they changing to during this time? We no longer have an excuse of we're too busy. We need to ask ourselves what's really the most important. Suddenly we have time to exercise, we have time for small groups in a devotional life, we have time for family, for projects, for something new. How are we going to use it? I was talking to two different dads last week and they said, oh yeah, my kids' sports have started up again. And you know, when COVID hit, I was really disappointed that we were losing all this sports. But now that we can go to youth events again, I'm starting to wonder, why didn't I use that time more effectively? If you started with a blank slate, how would you use your time? I think that's one of the gifts God's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to put first things first. Help us when we have this opportunity to have a great reset, to put you as number one. Because it's not easy. And we get so accustomed to work and at home and at play and all the activities that are taking place that we don't always remember what it is that is most important. And so as we open up this book that's 2,500 years old, tucked right into the middle of the Old Testament, something that we probably glaze over if we ever read it at all, may it speak to us powerfully today because we believe your word is taking place, uh, is given to your people to help them grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding of you. So Lord, may my words fall down and yours be lifted up. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen.
If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open up to Ezra chapter three. Ezra chapter three, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew racks in front of you. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, we invite you to download the app as well. Um, If you're new to church, the Bible can be a pretty intimidating book. There is a table of contents. You'll find Ezra in part of the Old Testament. That means it happened before the birth of Jesus. Big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Now, whether you're new or whether you're a regular attender, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen. We did something that we've uh, never done in my time here before, and we went through the history of Israel from the very creation in Genesis chapter one all the way up to Ezra, spanning a few thousand years at least. What happened and how did God's people end up where they are? Now, that doesn't really help you for today. So here's kind of a summary of what took place. The Israelites leave Egypt and they go on a 40-year trek through the desert. Eventually, they end up in the promised land and they say to God, can you please give us a king? So God gives them King Saul uh, and he's kind of a dud. After King Saul, we have David and Solomon and things are going incredibly well. It's the peak of Israelite history. To give you a glimpse of just how well things are going, this passage is from 1 Kings chapter 10. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the household articles of the palace of the forest of Lebanon were gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. That's the kind of prosperity we're talking about. And that's a pretty high standard to attain to. So after Solomon, we have Rehoboam. And Rehoboam has that wonderful opportunity to follow one of the wisest men who has ever lived. And he breaks the kingdom in half. And so this map that we looked at a couple times last week, we'll look at it two times today as well. You have Israel in the north, their new capital is Samaria. You have Judah in the south, their capital remains Jerusalem. After 200 years of Israel and 19 straight evil kings, Israel is annexed by Assyria in 722 BC. Judah, slightly better in their obedience to God, but they too were annexed, uh, this time by Babylon in 586 BC. And now someone has just taken over the empire of Babylon, a new world empire, the greatest superpower ever seen up to this point, Persia. The king of Persia, a man by the name of Cyrus, said to all of God's people all across this great empire, go back to Jerusalem. Go rebuild the temple and worship God there. That was last week, Ezra 1 and 2. Today, this is Ezra chapter 3 in the first six verses. When the seventh month came, when the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, some of your translations might say tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. After that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, pardon me, that's verse seven, (laughs) I want you to try to imagine how difficult this is. 
for our friends in this congregation who are Nigerian, who are Chinese, who have come from other nations to come to Canada, you can grasp the difficulty and the challenge that lay before them, where you pack up your entire homes, your entire livelihood, and you move to a foreign nation. My background is a bunch of um, Mennonite farmers who came from Ontario and Manitoba and arrived here in Alberta. And when they arrived, there was nothing. No house, no tractors, just a plot of land. Some of you have moved across country for work or for school and you begin to get this idea. What would it be like to move to a brand new place? This isn't an international vacation. This isn't the promised land uh, or, or a tour of the promised land. This is leaving all your comfort behind. This is looking at your friends and your family and giving them big tear-filled hugs and saying, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. This is packing up your donkey, your horse, putting everything you own, your tents, your couple pieces of clothing, some food, and making a 1,000-mile journey on foot to Jerusalem. During this four-month expedition, you would be with about 50,000 other Jews, and there would be storytelling. There would be a remembrance by the people who were the grandparents' age. This is what the temple looked like, and this is what it was like to worship there. These are the psalms that we sing as we head back to Jerusalem. This is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King, uh, David, and King Solomon, and all the prophets who went before us. And there's this excitement and there's this joy. And then you show up and you crest that last hill and you see nothing but a pile of rubble. Now, just so we're all clear, this picture is not 2,500 years old. Don't think there was color photography in Persia at this time. But that once magnificent temple, that one that took seven years to build with expert craftsmanship covered in gold and filled with the most beautiful of furnishings, the one that held the presence of God is replaced by a rubble of stone and burned to the ground. And yet, the people don't seem discouraged. They're all sent to their hometowns and they say, come back of the seventh month. If you have your Bibles in front of you, just to clarify, verse one says, when the seventh month came, this doesn't mean seven months after uh, leaving Babylon. This doesn't mean uh, seven months after the arrival in Jerusalem. It's the seventh month, probably the middle of September. And we don't have anything like what the Jews had during that time. The seventh month for Jews is the most holy month in the calendar. Our closest would be Christmas, where we kind of get excited about the Advent season and Christmas, maybe um, the Easter season, and especially if you practice Lent, there's a little bit of that going on. But it's still nothing like what the Jews would have. The Jews didn't have one or two celebrations. They actually had three. And the first one is this. It's the Feast of Trumpets that takes place on the first day of the seventh month. After 70 years in exile, the Israelites can relate more to the Jews who left Egypt than ever before. And the seventh month is a celebration of the sacrifice that took place as they left the Egypt and went into the promised land. The Feast of Trumpets is a day of rest. No regular work is done. While they were slaves in Egypt, they never had a day off. So this was a remembrance that God is giving them a day of rest. Remember when the Jews were in Egypt. Remember that I rescued you. The second celebration is the Day of Atonement. For those of you not familiar with the book of Exodus or need a reminder as to what happened when you were in Sunday school, there's 10 plagues that take place. And on the 10th day, they have the Day of Atonement to celebrate the 10 plagues and their rescue out of Egypt. 
That 10th plague that took place in Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And what the Israelites were told to do at that time was to take one pure and spotless lamb, sacrifice it, and take the blood from the lamb and put it on the door frames of their homes. And then when the angel of death came, it would pass over the homes of the Israelites and kill the firstborn son of all the Egyptians. The day of atonement is a solemn day for the people when they watch this priest slaughter a perfect spotless lamb and are reminded that all their sins are paid for. Hebrews 9, which is a New Testament book, talks about how the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. A few days later, they have the Feast of Tabernacles. It might say tabernacles or booths in your Bible, same thing. It takes place on the 15th day of the month. So they've come out of Egypt. There's a few days walking towards the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army chase them down. They cross through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is um, destroyed by the water. They are on the other side and they celebrate and praise God. And they look around and say, where are we supposed to live? So they gather a bunch of sticks together, put it together with mud and they have a feast of booths, a remembrance that God rescued them and provided for them. This entire seventh month is one of sacrifice and remembrance, 70 years coming out of exile. And it's extremely meaningful. Let's pause for a moment. The Jews have arrived after a 1,000 mile trek in a brand new place that many of them have never been there before. And after getting their food, clothing, and shelter figured out, they come back to Jerusalem and what's the first thing they do? They worship. The first thing on the docket, let's worship. Second Chronicles is the book right before Ezra. And listen to how this book ends. They, the Babylonians, set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and destroyed everything of value. This place is a pile of rubble. There is no wall to protect them. There is no city to gather in. There is no government. There is no civic structure. There is no marketplace. There is no commerce. There is nothing. And the Jews arrive in Jerusalem and say, we need to worship. We must make God the number one priority. Because when we start with worship, our ethics, our government, our commerce, our protection, everything else will fall in order because we have placed God first. Maybe you know where this is going. Where does God rank in your life? Is God your number one priority? Do you want to see renewal in our lives and in our churches? On a personal level, do you long for more of God? Do you long to seek after God and say, God, I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with power so that I can go out and share the good news of the gospel, that I can see my friends come to faith in you. I want to have more peace. Despite all the difficulties surrounding me, I want to know that being involved in you, sharing our lives together means that there will be peace. Do you see yourself living in the freedom that God has to offer? And recognizing that as individuals, if we're seeking God first, if we're putting him number one in our lives and we see the renewal happen, that the renewal is gonna impact our church, that we're gonna see stories of life change like Leona last week when she was baptized, that we're gonna hear about great stories coming out of our youth and children's ministry, that we're gonna have story after story after story of groups being changed, of individuals' hearts being redeemed because of the work God is doing within us. 
I once heard it said, show me your calendar and your bank statement and I'll show you your priorities. So how do we put God number one? For some of you, you might be thinking, Dave, I'm, I'm already in church. Obviously, God is number one. But are you just here because there's nothing else to do this morning? Your kids don't have a sporting event. There is no golfing game. And you know, I'm up anyways. I may as well come. Are we putting God number one with our bank account? Are you giving regularly to the church? And if you're not, how can you start? Is it with $20 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, where you just say, God, I'm not sure I'm ready for that traditional 10%, but I'm gonna start with this. For those of you who are watching online, we're so glad you're here. Are you a part of Christian community? Are you a part of a small group or a triad that's meeting on Zoom and sharing your life with one another? This idea of putting God first is completely countercultural, but it's where renewal begins. If we want to see different results, we need to have different practices. If you're in your mid-30s or older, you probably remember stores being shut down on Sundays. It's not that way anymore. This past spring, my two little kids said, Dad, we really want to play soccer. And so I was looking to sign them up. The local soccer in my neighborhood was on Sunday mornings and only Sunday mornings. And as I was driving home and seeing the registration sign on the road, I thought, that's different. When I was growing up, at least it was on Saturdays. And we can bemoan culture, but human nature hasn't really changed that much. And we can think, well, what did the Persians and the Babylonians and when the Israelites weren't listening to God, what were they doing? What kept their attention? They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have YouTube. What were they doing? Anything except God. But they come back from captivity. They come back from 70 years of exile and something is different. Take another look at verse three. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. When the Israelites had been taken captivity, um, captive by the Assyrians, when the Judites had been taken captive by the Babylonians, what these uh, new empires would do is they would assimilate us among the rest of the nations. And so they would take the Jews, they would take the Israelites and they'd say, a few of you are gonna go here, a few of you are gonna go there. And eventually the Babylonian culture is going to transform you. But when they took from other nations, they would send them to Judah. And so there were other people in the land and these other people weren't thrilled that the native Israelites were coming back home. Notice though, how the Jews respond. You know, if I was afraid somebody was going to attack me, I would probably do something at my house. I'd put up better locks. I might put some shutters on my windows. I would do whatever I could to protect my family. And the Jews go, no, no, no. We're not gonna start with the wall. We're not gonna start with that city structure. We're gonna start by worshiping. And they recognize that for renewal to happen, for renewal to take place, we need to set God first. We need to have our priorities in order. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, you are going to be a blessing to all nations. And so Abraham later on in chapter 12 journeys to Canaan, which we learn eventually is the promised land. And the first thing he does there is he builds an altar and he worships. The Jews come out of Egypt and are led by Moses around the desert for 40 years. And right before Moses dies and Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land, Moses looks at over a million people and he says to them, remember, when you get into the promised land, build an altar and worship. And when the Jews come home, they have a priority. We are going to build this altar and we're going to worship. Verse seven, 
So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Yopa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. I can't uh, do a simple project around my house without making at least one trip to Canadian Tire, usually a couple. Here are the Jews coming from Babylon and they arrive in a pile of rubble and they know they have to rebuild. But there is no Lowe's, there is no Home Depot, there is no hardware store to go to. And so they need to talk to surrounding nations to say, hey, send us your goods so that we can do what Cyrus has called us to do and and so we can worship our God. Earlier in the message, I showed a map of Judah and Israel. And you'll see the other nations around there. You'll see Philistia and Moab and Edom and the rest. But a little bit up the coast, you'll see Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are in the ancient country of Phoenicia. It's modern day Lebanon. And they're renowned for their cedars. These trees would grow to 120 feet high, 40 feet round. And they were sought after by people around the ancient Near East at the time. When Solomon built the temple 500 years earlier, this is where he got the timber from. And just like their former king, the Israelites are saying, we need to get that and build the temple one more time. Verses eight and nine. Now in the second year, after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kedmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinadad, the Levites, their sons and their brothers. You might look at that and go like, okay, that's sort of interesting, so what? There's a line in there that says the Levites 20 years old and older. It's a pretty young foreman, not sure how many construction sites you go to, not a lot of 20-year-olds. The Levites, to um, have this kind of role and responsibility in the past, you had to be 30 years of age. But there weren't enough of them, so they lowered it to be 25 years of age. And here the Israelites come back from, uh, from Persia, and there's still not enough of them, so they lower it again to be of 20 years of age. There's some beautiful symmetry going on here as well between the building of the new temple and the building of Solomon's temple. Not only do they get the wood from the same place, but they pay for the workers and trade for the wood with the same commodities. And it didn't go unnoticed that it happened at the exact same time of year. In 2 Chronicles, we read that Solomon began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. The similarities are interesting, but the uniqueness is what sets it apart. We learn that it's not just the paid laborers that are building but it's the people, the politicians, and the priests, everyone working together to put God first. So we want renewal to happen. Where are we putting our actions? Where are we putting our hearts? Where are we putting our activities? I might be a full-time pastor, but everybody in this room is in full-time ministry. One of the members of our church owns a local gym and he's passionate about Alpha. I'm all in on evangelism. I'm really excited that three of my friends are going through Alpha right now, but my friend Justin is passionate about Alpha. And I said, like, how do people know about your love for Jesus? And he rolls up his sleeve and he has a tattoo of the crucifixion. He goes, it's pretty hard to miss. 
everybody who comes to my gym who is a regular, I tell about Jesus. And I said, really, how does that work? And he goes, oh, it's really simple. I tell them, Jesus will change your life. Come to Alpha, hear all about it, learn about Jesus, and he is going to change everything about you. And then they show up, and then I lead the Alpha course. (laughs) I'm thinking, that's pretty impressive. Last week during the first service, a man by the name of Tim was guest leading in our worship. He has a full-time job, but he's using his musical gifts here. As soon as the service ended, he went out into the foyer and he started putting together Operation Christmas Child Boxes. But it's not just like work is one part of life and then church is another part of life. God wants everything. If you're a manager at work, how do you lead for God's glory? How do you treat your staff? How do you treat your employees? How do you treat your coworkers? How do you treat those who are above you? Are your words, thoughts, and actions glorifying to God? If you're a regular employee, how do you serve God by what you do at work? If you're a barista, is every cup of coffee made with a genuine care and concern that it might brighten that person's day? If you're a school teacher or a medical professional, are you caring for those people who are right in front of you at that given moment, hoping that your life, your smile, your words of kindness and encouragement might be a blessing to them? If you're a parent, how do you show your kids on 168 hours a week what love looks like, how you treat them, how you listen to them, how you interact with them? As students, are you giving your absolute best when you're in school? Will you join us in renewal? Will you join us and say, I'm going to put God first. I want to see what happens when I give God my life and when this church is taken over by the spirit and the power of God. When the builders laid, verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. We celebrate what's important to us. Last Sunday, I was uh, getting ready in my office for the day ahead, and uh, somebody walked into the office, and suddenly all this screaming took place. It wasn't bad screaming. It was screaming of joy. And I'm not a detective, but I kind of figured out if Kelsey's leading this, and Kelsey's excited, and the girl's pitch's voice are going higher, then something is happening. She probably got engaged. And so I come out, and finally the guy is allowed to talk, And I say, Kelsey, we have somebody who's going to open both the first and second service, but would you like to do that instead? And if you were here last week, you know that Kelsey stood up and she introduced herself and she said, I'm engaged and the church celebrated with her. We also celebrated Leona's baptism. We celebrated a brand new song and it felt like there was an incredible presence of God in the room. We celebrate that God is at work. We celebrate that God is changing lives. We celebrate that during our Courageous Community Series, over 70 people joined small groups and said, we wanna serve in the church. We celebrate that during training day where we train our volunteers and kind of have a pep rally and then they go off to their different areas of ministry, 115 people showed up. We celebrate that we have three alpha courses and people coming to hear the good news of Jesus. We celebrate when God is at work. 
and the Israelites 2,500 years ago are coming to this altar and saying, God, will you have all of us? We need you. And here we are two and a half millennia later, will we say the same thing? Will we put God first in our time, in our finances, in our words and how we treat family and everything else? Because when we put God first, renewal starts to happen. But here's what's interesting. Not everybody was happy. Verses 12 and 13. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. There's two groups of people who are present. You have the people who were born in exile, people who were born in captivity, who are so grateful for Cyrus, king of Persia, saying they're allowed to go back home and they're gonna rebuild the temple and they're gonna rebuild Jerusalem and God is gonna do something special and they shout with praises for God. But there's a second group, a group of the older men and women, grandparents' age, who are coming back to Jerusalem, but the splendor and the glory of the temple of God is no longer present. Israel, once powerful, is now weak and insignificant. The temple, once large and beautiful, is now a pile of rubble. The riches pale in comparison to the splendor of David and Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. And where is God's glory? His manifest presence is missing. Last week, Sid Coop walked into my office. Sid Coop, for those of you who don't know him, um, preaches here once a month. And he said, Sid, uh, he said, Dave, we, were, we just finished Courageous Community and I heard that great things happened. What's next? And I said, Sid, we're gonna preach through Ezra. And he goes, are you kidding me? And I said, Sid, hold on a sec. I had a couple Bibles out on my desk. I had a couple commentaries. He got me right in the middle of my study. And I said, Sid, listen to this. The older people are upset and they're sad and they're crying because the glory of God's temple is no longer there. He goes, yeah. And I said, do you know what Haggai the prophet says? And he goes, I have no idea. <laughs> Haggai says, stop your weeping. This work is of God and it's going to be great. Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands. I will shake all nations, and the desired nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Of course, church is going to look different pre-COVID to post-COVID. Of course, the temple is going to look different pre-exile to post-exile. But here's what's fascinating. The prophet Haggai, sent by God, says, you older people who are thinking about what happened, how dare you? 
Do you recognize that we worship the God of the universe, the God who calls us out of exile, the God who redeems, who renews, who restores? Do you not recognize that there is a foreshadowing going on, that though this is a stone foundation, a greater foundation is coming, a foreshadowing that someone who is is going to come, who is not just a foundation, but he is the cornerstone of the faith, and he will be the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, rose three days later, and is one day coming back, that Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one on whom all salvation rests. And Peter says, we like living stones are built into this spiritual house to be that holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Renewal, people, doesn't come through a building. Renewal comes through the worship of our great and glorious King. And Haggai the prophet And Joshua and Zerubbabel are saying, focus on who God is. The church isn't a physical building. The church is the glory of God himself, the person of Jesus Christ, the work of his Holy Spirit, bringing people together in the holiness of the saints. Do we want renewal to happen? It starts with us to see God transform our lives in our church, in our community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ezra. While it might be tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament, while many of us might skip it or read it and go, we don't know what that means. God, may we be encouraged that this is a story of renewal, a story of radical life change. We remember what you've done in the past but we also look forward to what you're going to do again. And so God, for what we're going through now in the sense of it's pre-COVID versus post-COVID, may we be excited that you are at work in this place, that you are changing lives, that people want to get baptized, that people are learning about God, that people are coming to church, that people are checking us out online. And may we be a people that keeps our faith and our hope so focused on you that we see personal renewal and we see renewal in our church, believing that the greatest days are still to come. Pray this in Jesus' power.